It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Isn't it a little strange how these swaggering billionaires can act like testosterone-addled high school students at times? So Elon Musk, of course, the CEO of Tesla and also SpaceX, which just won this big contract from NASA, had been competing for that contract with Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, owner of the Washington Post. And after Musk Company won the big contract, nearly $3 billion, he took to Twitter and he said that Bezos can't get it up, parentheses, to orbit, LOL. Well, it's not really that LOL, especially if you're Jeff Bezos, whose space company is called Blue Origin, which has just filed a protest with federal authorities over uh, the contract award to SpaceX. But maybe it shows, I mean, I don't know, isn't it dumb? But maybe it shows that Elon Musk does have some, albeit hidden, sense of humor, given the uh, unrelated flap about how could Saturday Night Live put him on as guest host. All right. Bunch of other things to get to. By the way, beautiful day here in Washington. It's in the 80s again for the second straight day. It's summer, and I always love this time of year, not just because the azaleas are out, we've just gone through the cherry blossoms, but because all of the mosquitoes and the bugs haven't invaded yet, and it's not 97 degrees and uh, with high humidity turning into a swamp. In the summertime, we wonder why on earth Congress agreed to move the Capitol here. All right, other, uh, you know, the whole thing about the bogus story about Biden wants to take away your burgers, and I'm going to talk more about this in a moment. So Condé Nast has a uh, food magazine called Epicurious, and it, this is a real story, this is not bogus, has decided, uh, the editor has decided that they will publish no more beef recipes. We believe that what we cook and how we cook it is a powerful action anybody can take to fight climate change. Okay, you know, Epicurious can publish or not publish anything it wants. But people will just go elsewhere. There's a zillion places you can get beef recipes. And, uh, you know, it just seems like a bunch of virtue signaling to me. And people want to be vegetarians, don't want to eat beef, don't want to cook beef, don't want to help fight climate change, want to protect the cows. I don't care. And they can do that. But why would a food magazine take this kind of stance? All right, you may have your own views on this. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's company, News Corp, has decided not to launch a Fox News-style uh, news channel in the UK after concluding and gearing up, doing studies and everything. This would not be financially viable, that it would not make lots of money. Uh, they're going to still do video production and so forth um, in Britain, but no uh, Fox News UK uh, will be coming down the pipe. The Washington Post famously, you know, the fact checker column, which I talked about yesterday, you know, spent four years not only uh, accusing Donald Trump of lying, of misleading, of one Pinocchio, two Pinocchios, three Pinocchios, four Pinocchios, but it kept a database. Anybody could check this out. Well, now that we're about to hit the 100-day mark uh, for President Biden, um, the guy who runs it, Glenn Kessler, has tweeted that um, th they'll still fact-check Biden, but there's not going to be any more database uh, because it's basically so much work, uh, people you know, having to work uh, all kinds of crazy hours in addition to their regular jobs. But what about that slogan, democracy dies in darkness? Interesting choice. I mean, the way I read it is, look, Joe Biden says things that are sometimes false, 
There are sometimes political exaggerations. But, um, you know, by and large, he tells the truth. And so we don't feel the need to have this four-year project as we did with the 45th president. All right. I want to get serious here with number one because it has to do with a really bad uh, story in the New York Post, also owned by Rupert Murdoch, that was picked up at lots of places, including Fox News. A story that turned out to be completely and totally false. So the New York Post had reported the following. There's a shelter in Long Beach, Long Beach, California, for migrant children coming across the border who then suddenly in U.S. custody. And what the New York tabloid said was that the welcome kits being given to these migrants uh, included uh, copies of Vice President Kamala Harris's book. And so that caused a bit of a stir on the right. And it was picked up in a lot of places. And as I said, it was mentioned on Fox News, said this is outrageous and so forth. So it turns out it's not only completely and totally false, but the New York Post reporter who wrote the article, her name is Laura Italiano, well, she tweeted yesterday that she has resigned from the paper, the Kamala Harris story, an incorrect story I was ordered to write and which I failed to push back hard enough against was my breaking point. Well, so now it raises all kinds of questions. This reporter was told to write this. She was ordered to write this. She had qualms about it. She didn't push back, but she, the paper published it anyway. Who ordered it? Was it the top editor? Was it one of the other editors? Why did the New York Post think that this was worthy of publication? So uh, Washington Post, among others, asked the New York Post for comment. Post said, well, you can call our PR uh, agency. And the PR agency has not, as of now, responded to this accusation about the reporter being ordered to write this article. So what happened is um, the implication of the story was that the vice president of the United States was personally profiting from the immigration situation. That would be pretty bad if that was true. This is, by the way, is a children's book called Superheroes Are Everywhere. And what actually happened, according to a spokesman in Long Beach, was that a person in the community had donated one copy of the Harris book as part of a book drive, and it was not handed out in Welcome Kids. It was just one copy that was donated by somebody who lives in that area. So what did the New York Post do when this came out? The Washington Post did a fact check, the aforementioned fact-checking column, and found out that this was basically BS. Well, uh, first the New York Post did an editor's note. The original version of this article said migrant kids were getting Harris's book and welcome kit, but has been updated to note that only one known copy of the book was given to a child. In other words, the story was wrong, totally wrong, completely, totally wrong. And by the way, it's not even clear that this child received a copy of the book. Uh, according, There was a photo of Reuters showing a vacant bed at the shelter in Long Beach, including many items, including toys and clothing. No government funds were used for this. And then the New York Post story just vanished. The link vanished. The whole thing just completely vanished. It was memory hold. It didn't exist anymore. Now, at a Jen Psaki press briefing, Fox's uh, Peter Ducey asked her about the book. Um, and this was written up. That has also been scrubbed from the New York Post. Uh, Jen Psaki maybe didn't have all the information time. I don't think she said this is completely garbage. Um, but it didn't completely knock down the story. But now the story has been knocked down. And it's kind of related to the phony meat story. That was the conservative Daily Mail, as I mentioned yesterday. 
Um, and Fox, which picked this up, has run a couple of corrections on it, as it should, saying that Joe Biden wants to take away your burgers. That Joe Biden wants to cut meat consumption in this country by 90% in order to meet his climate change goals. And that wasn't true either. This was just the Daily Mail saying, well, in order to meet these goals, which are pretty ambitious, perhaps unrealistic, and people can certainly criticize the notion that we can cut greenhouse gas emissions in half in just nine years. Well, here's one way you could do it. People could stop eating so much meat. People should only get four ounces of meat um, a month, I think it was. Uh, one burger a month. So, you know, it became Burgergate. Except the Biden climate change plan doesn't have anything to do with meat. It's completely and totally the conjecture of the Daily Mail. And yet that, and so I think the lesson here, and this is not to excuse any organization that picked it up, but I've seen some of the things happen with left-wing organizations is, you know, somebody writes something that's kind of hot, that's kind of buzzy, that's kind of sizzling, and suddenly it's all over the internet. And then some, you know, young producer picks it up, writes a script, and then some anchor or correspondent says, what about this? And this is outrageous and this is ludicrous. But without going back and doing the original checking. And, you know, anybody who's been in this business has made mistakes. I've made mistakes, but I've long ago decided I'm not taking anybody's word for anything. I mean, if the New York Times publishes a story and says, our sources say this, uh, I will look at, are there documents? Are there emails? Is there a denial by the administration? But if it's just one of these things like Biden wants to take your meat away, or Kamala Harris's book is being, you know, peddled for profit at the border, you got to go back and look at the original article. Who was the first to report this and what evidence do they have? Now, sometimes there's evidence. Sometimes there's no evidence. Sometimes it's obvious that the thing is just um, kind of a fabrication. And in this interconnected world where we all want to have the funny tweet, the outrage tweet, or the fake outrage tweet, you know, there's just way too many people. And if it involves people I work for, I'm going to mention that too. There's just way too many people who are too quick on the trigger to put this out there. And maybe they do it online and then that migrates to television. So there's a lesson here. But here's another example, uh, having nothing to do with Fox, has to do with USA Today, nothing to do with the New York Post. So USA Today, one of the nation's largest newspapers, ran uh, an op-ed piece from Stacey Abrams, the former Georgia gubernatorial candidate, um, about Major League Baseball moving the All-Star game from Atlanta. It was published back on March 31st, just before the baseball announcement. And in that op-ed piece, I guess we don't use op-ed anymore, according to the New York Times, in that opinion piece for USA Today, uh, Abrams seemed to defend the national response to what she called the racist classist legislation. But then, without telling anybody, USA Today allowed Stacey Abrams to edit the piece. It had already been published. But now the tide had turned and she was being accused, so she writes the following. Republican leaders blame me and others who have championed voting rights and actually read the bill. The faux outrage is designed to hide the fact that they prioritize making it harder for people of color to vote over the economic well-being of all Georgians. Um, boycotts inevitably also cost jobs, says Stacey Abrams, to be sustainable. The pain of deprivation must be shared rather than borne by those who are least resilient. 
I have no doubt that voters of color, particularly black voters, are willing to endure the hardship of boycotts, but such monetary loss is unlikely to affect the stubborn, frightened Republicans who see voter suppression as their only way to win. Okay, I have no problem with her publishing those words, but she went back. It was like a stealth edit. She revised this thing. She changed her position, or she, you know, uh, tried to further justify her position. And this is outrageous. You can't allow that. A spokesperson for Gannett, which is the parent company of USA Today, told Fox, we regret the oversight in updating the Stacey Abrams column. As soon as we recognized there was no editor's note, we added it to the page to reflect her changes. We've reviewed our procedures to ensure this does not occur again, which is journalism speak for we screwed up. It was a bad mistake. We're owning up to our mistake, and we're going to change our procedure. What were the procedures before? That it's okay for Stacey Abrams to do this? Are there any examples in which USA Today allowed a Republican politician to go back and stealth edit and update because of changing political circumstances, something he or she had written? Wow. Okay, let's move on. Number two. So tonight's the big Biden speech. And all the papers this morning have all a lot of the details of what's going to be in the speech. That means the coverage tonight is mostly going to be, was it a great speech? How did the um, members of Congress react? How did uh, Tim Scott do in his reaction? So among the things, and this is just the New York Times version, this is going to be a $1.8 trillion bill called the American Families Plan. Now remember, this comes after the $2 trillion COVID relief bill, uh, the $2.3 trillion um, infrastructure bill, which has a lot more than infrastructure. And now the White House wants to spend another trillion dollars and add on to that $800 billion in tax credits. I mean, keep in mind, I mean, these are funny money numbers. Keep in mind, the whole federal budget for the entire year is $4 trillion. Just the last two bills alone matches that. And if you throw in the COVID bill, you've exceeded that. So the White House is trying to frame this as, oh, here are all the great things that are in it. Um, expanding access to education and child care, um, money for universal pre-kindergarten plan, federal leave program, efforts to make child care more affordable, free community college for all. That was a, a Bernie thing. Uh, aid for students at colleges that serve historically non-white communities, expanded subsidies under Obamacare, new federal efforts to fight poverty. But you can go down the list of these things and I'll say, sure, it's great. Yeah, I want to fight poverty. Sure, free college, that's great. Free community college. Yeah, there should be a more uh, affordable childcare. Of course, it'd be wonderful uh, if uh, everybody had access to pre-kindergarten programs. But can the country afford this when, when there's so much red ink? Um, and then all of this, you know, all of these tax credits. Uh, now, for the, the current bill, the infrastructure bill, it hasn't yet passed. You know, Biden wants to increase capital gains and dividend tax rates for those who earn more than $1 million a year. It's called tax the rich. Okay, that's, he talked about that during the campaign, not these specific details. Republicans are obviously going to oppose that. And that means we're back to the same old argument about taxing and spending. And the Republicans are going to try to make Biden far more liberal than he uh, uh, campaigned on in 2020. And I think there's some truth to that. I mean, Biden kind of ran as a common sense center left, almost moderate by Bernie and Elizabeth standards. And he's going for broke here. Lots of big proposals, which I think is not unrelated to the fact that uh, Biden knows, the White House knows, the Democrats know, that after the midterms, they may no longer have control of the House. Kevin McCarthy just needs to flip five seats. Here's a couple things that bug me, though. 
as we get more details. So uh, President Obama, he took a more centrist approach geared toward lower-income families. And we know that Joe is, you know, Amtrak Joe, and he wants to help the middle class. And that's generally a great thing. But universal pre-kindergarten, universal preschool, um, under Obama, it favored helping lower-income families get their kids into these preschool programs. Biden is calling for universal preschool for all three- and four-year-olds, including those from affluent families. So if you're a millionaire and you can easily afford it, you can send your kid to pre-K and not pay a dime. The same thing goes with the Biden proposal for a free community college, which is, of course, two years of college. All students, regardless of income. If you're a millionaire and your kid wants to go to community college, you don't pay a dime. Now, how can that be justified? Doesn't this have to be targeted toward people, and this has always been the Democratic Party philosophy, who are, not, who are less able and you can argue about where the income cutoff should be. But, you know, Jeff Bezos' kids could get free community college. Jeff Bezos' kids could get free pre-kindergarten. Why have, spend taxpayer dollars for people who can afford to pay for this stuff? I just don't get it. I absolutely don't get it. I, I, I think that undermines public support. Well, I understand it politically because the more people you allow to get these government benefits, the more likely you're going to get public opinion polls that say, yeah, this is a good idea because my kid can go even if I make, what, 700000 500000 200000 I mean, where should the cutoff be? Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. I have a column today about Biden being boring. But uh, what I'm doing there is playing off a piece in New York Magazine by Jonathan Chait, liberal writer, uh, who actually is saying boring is better. Boring is good. It's great that Biden is boring. Uh, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you've got to be interesting. But let me read a little bit from the New York Magazine piece, and I recommend the column to you, because I think it, you know, it kind of fits in with where we are with the big speech tonight. It's not a great orator, never has been, and doesn't claim to be. Biden's advantage says Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine, is that he's not just nice, he's also tedious. He is relentlessly enacting an ambitious domestic agenda, signing legislation that could cut child poverty by more than half, expanding Obamacare, and so forth, while arousing hardly any controversy. Well, you got to be in the Manhattan media circles to think that, you're not, that Biden's not arousing any controversy. I mean, the, the Republicans, at least those who are in office, are, are rip, ripped over this. You know, all the trillion-dollar bills all the executive orders uh, on issues like immigration. Of course they're controversial. Gun control, of course they're controversial. What, what he's really trying to say, though, is that it's hard to demonize Joe Biden. He's been around forever. People kind of like Uncle Joe. And so the Republicans haven't had much luck in saying he's a crazy socialist. But So therefore, it's good because if Biden himself is not that controversial, he can be the most liberal president since LBJ, the most liberal president since FDR, pick your historical president. Um, and my take is Biden is moving away from the great communicator model of the presidency. Ronald Reagan was a great communicator. Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, great at giving speeches. And that's how, I think that's actually important because that's how you win over public opinion. And if public opinion is on your side, then that in and of itself will pressure members of Congress in your party, but also in the other party, uh, to, to at least compromise on what you want to accomplish. 
Uh, says New York Magazine, there's nothing in Biden's vanilla ice cream bromides for his critics to hook onto. Republicans can't stop Biden because he's boring them to death. Man, that's a ruthless strategy. And he goes on to say, the tedium is the message. And whether you agree with this or not, that's a great line. Um, so I just think, um, you know, the media calling Joe Biden a transformational president, we'll see. We're still in the first hundred days. Um, it is true that he does. He goes out of his way. And as a, as a journalist, I don't like the fact that he gives so few interviews, that he engages so rarely with the press. Uh, then, you know, he'll take a couple of questions after giving a speech, but that's it. Uh, and it seems to me that you can get away with that when you've got a, a, a popularity rating in the mid to low 50s. But it's harder to do when you run into tough times. But now, according to the left, boring is better. Okay, uh, number four. Politico has a piece saying 100 days into the Biden administration, the White House is a tight ship defined by insularity, internal power centers, and top-down micromanagement. And to Politico's credit, it says, well, you know, they don't leak very much, but I've pointed out examples where they do leak. In fact, they leaked uh, the details of the speech uh, to the morning papers. Uh, there is a downside to this. Uh, Jen Psaki's quoted as saying, everybody feels driven to get things right and do right by Joe Biden. Uh, not just as Americans, but the people here have worked for him for decades as a personal loyalty, and all that is true. Still, some aides complain Biden has kept in too much of a bubble, one where few people can get his ear outside of a cadre of loyalists he's cultivated for decades. Exhaustion is setting in amid a punishing, punishing and relentlessly serious remote work regimen. So they can't go out for a beer after work because of COVID and all of that. Uh, hiring remains stubbornly sluggish because, according to Politico at least, the top Biden officials want to sign off on even low-level hiring decisions like advanced people and stuff like that, and that does slow things down. There's a blind quote here from White House official who also worked for Obama. They used to say, no drama, Obama, but honestly, this White House is even more devoid of that. And that is, uh, dovetails with what I said about Biden not being provocative on Twitter, not poking his finger in the eye of Republicans. I mean, once in a while he'll say Neanderthals or something like that, but he doesn't do it very often. Uh, some people have been cut out of the action, such as, according to Politico, former Congressman uh, Cedric Richmond says there's some disappointment among his allies that even though he's the senior advisor in charge of public engagement, and I've seen him on TV now and then, he hasn't been empowered the way they expected. In other words, it's very, very hard to get into the inner circle of Biden loyalists, Ron Klain and Steve Reschetti and uh, Nita Dunn, who've had some association with the former vice president for a very long time. All right, let's give the other side. Number five, Rich Lowry writing in National Review. Uh, there's believing your own press releases and there's believing your own delusions of grandeur. Tell us more, Rich. Uh, Joe Biden should look in the mirror every day and see a president elected on the basis of the unpopularity of his predecessor at a time when the country was slammed by a once in 100 years pandemic. Okay, let's say that's true. Instead, by every account, he sees a transformative leader with a mandate to change America in rapidly and ir as rapidly and irreversibly as possible. Biden's drive to make himself the next FDR and erect a massive progressive edifice on the slightest of political foundations is monumentally arrogant and almost certainly bound to fail. Well, why bound to fail? Okay, here's the case, and I can't argue with this. Biden has got, as everybody knows, a 50-50 tie in the Senate. 
which means it's very difficult for them to get anything through except with all 50 Democrats, and that includes Joe Manchin, with the vice president breaking the tie. Um, Nancy Pelosi has a five-seat edge in the House of Representatives. FDR, after the 1932 election, which ushered in the New Deal, not only had 58 Democratic senators, he had almost a 200-seat majority in the House. There were 313 Democratic members of the House and 117 Republicans. Republicans lost 100 seats in that election. So all of those big alphabet soup agency New Deal programs, of course it was easy for FDR to get them through. So, so far, you know, Biden's been able to use reconciliation, which is basically, you know, party line budget vote that totally shuts down the Republicans. Well, at some point he can't continue to say I'm bipartisan presidentship president. Of course, these they say it's popular out in the country, not so much in Washington. But basically what Rich Lowry says, and which a lot of Republicans are saying, is that this is not the way Joe Biden campaigned. He doesn't have a mandate to do all these things. Does he have a mandate on COVID and vaccinations and helping rebuild the economy? Sure. But to spend five, six trillion dollars, well, you could argue that he was thoroughly upfront about raising taxes on corporations, uh, not as high as they were before Trump, but certainly higher than they've been under Trump, and raising taxes on people making over four hundred thousand dollars or families making over four hundred thousand dollars is still not clear. You know, he did campaign on those things, but when you get into you know the huge, massive spending in these bills, you know, Lowry is right. Republicans are right to say that it's bait and switch. Or at least it's a good line of attack. They haven't had much success in attacking Joe personally. But, you know, so the line of attack is spending all this money is totally unrealistic. It's going to bankrupt the country. Unfortunately for them, the economy is coming back. Well, of course it's coming back because we're injecting $2 trillion in government money into the economy. And the stock market is breaking records. Um, And that's great if you're in the stock market. And it's great if you're employed or if you've got your job back or you got aid to small businesses, all that's great. But at some point, the bill is going to come due. And so I think the debate in this country should include conservatives who are making the kind of arguments that National Review is making. All right, number six, a little bonus here. Um, I love this piece uh, on Substack. Uh, I usually see Substack, you know, it's newsletters for journalists uh, where you have to subscribe, but some of it's free. So Jay Caruso has a substack. He is um, top editor at the Washington Examiner. So Caruso writes that about the rise in hall monitoring. This is the phenomenon, he says, in which Twitter users monitor other people's tweets and call out those who are not sufficiently upset, angry, sad, whatever, about a particular issue or person. And tweets are typically framed this way. Oh, you had time to tweet about blank, about blank, but you couldn't find the time to say S about blank. Typical. I get that all the time. All the time. It's like, especially if I write something light, oh, you're tweeting about this funny little thing, but why haven't you weighed in on what's happening in the Middle East? Why haven't you weighed in on Armenia? Why haven't you weighed in on this? Oh, because you can't be bothered to do that, right? This just shows you are, and that's usually I'm too liberal, I'm too conservative, I'm too out of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, when I get that criticism on a Thursday, says Caruso, I genuinely laugh. Oh, I'm sorry. I've been up since 5.30 in the morning, edited ten to 12,000 words, edited a podcast, started updating the magazine landing page. I am so sorry I did not prioritize my time around the schedule you've created for me. And then he gives some more examples. He says, you know what? Um, 
it's easy to jump on. He says, look, there were times I jump on Twitter, take a quick look, reply to someone, retweet something I see that's interesting, or tweet something out. But that's because it's Twitter. It's easy to do that without getting into the weeds over every issue. And yes, there are times when I get so busy with other things like real life that I'm not attuned to every outrage taking place in the world and running to Twitter to offer up my viewpoint. Sadly, the motive, says Caruso, is what's become the go-to accusation on the right, whether it's Trump leg humpers, frothing anti-Trump people, anti-anti-Trump, anti-anti-anti-Trump, or whatever silo one finds themselves in. Ironically, the assumed motives are pretty much the same. The point I'm making is life is more complicated than what we see on Twitter. So let me just talk about my experience on this because sometimes I'll see, you know, I'm doing 50 things. I mean, I'm, I have a podcast that you're listening to now. I write a daily column. I go on television. I have a show that I have to write, that I have to produce, that I have to talk to my staff about booking. Um, you know, not complaining. Love the job. Very happy with it. But so I see, oh, there's a huge thing on Twitter about somebody I never heard of. And I say, you know what? Maybe I'll look at that later because i got a deadline here. i got to finish the podcast. Or I'll see there really is some huge um, controversy going on that's been in the major papers. And... I haven't had time to research it. And because I haven't had time to research it, I don't feel like I should go on and pop off because I might be wrong, I might be missing the main point, and maybe I'll come back to it later, and maybe there's just days I'm too busy to get to it. And then there are other things where I just, like, I haven't had five minutes to think about it, so I don't have a point of view. You know, it's kind of like, it's like a criminal offense. What? You don't have a criminal, you don't have a point of view? You're not outraged by X? Well, I want to look into X. I want to think about X. I want to spend more than 10 seconds pondering whether X is as bad as it seems. Is there more to X? Is there also Y and possibly Z? Um, you know, because if I put my name on something, and look, there's been times when I've done it too. You quickly uh, tweet something, turns out, uh, turns out that it's a lot more complicated, and then you have to come back and say, well, I didn't know this. So it's just funny that people have lots and lots of time to spend on Twitter. There's even like if it breaks at 9 o'clock and I, um, I finish my other obligations and then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon I say, okay, I'll look at this. And then I say, you know what, this is, I should weigh on this and I tweet something. It's like, where have you been for the last six hours? How dare you not drop everything you're doing and tweet about this thing that I, in my uh, wisdom, some person I'd never heard of or who knows, or ideologues on both sides, uh, have decided is the most important issue right now, and you are dereliction. You are committing dereliction of duty by not weighing it. I think I've made my point. Finally, I will make my point. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you subscribe. Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, on your Amazon device. We'll see you tomorrow with more buzzing. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.